Bones River and so forth, and all the other famous battlefields uh, of the war. Tonight we're privileged to bring you one that I don't think you've ever heard of before. And uh, to bring us this story this evening, we've had the pleasure of bringing in Mr. Joseph A. Daly from Los Angeles to tell us about the Battle of Pilgrim's Point. Mr. Daly. Thanks very much, Dad. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be in Chicago, uh, primarily because I can get my name spelled right here. <laughs> a lot of different ways it's spelled daily. My father had the reason why. It seems that, uh, of course, the education laws in Ireland were such for 200 years the Irish couldn't read or write, so they didn't know how to spell their names. And when an English soldier or a tax collector or someone else came up to an antecedent who was trotting a fog somewhere, it was my own, I guess, back in County Waterford, he thought that they would say to him, what's your name? And my father's kin would say, Daly. And he said, well, how do you spell that? D-A-L-E-Y? He said, yes, you son of a bitch. <coughs> so that's why I have Daly's all D-A-L-Y, E-Y, everything. But Mayor Daly has certainly got it down for us. I couldn't get a room at the Palmer House several years ago when I came in and uh, said my name was Daly. And uh, they sort of looked at me. And they said, any relation to the mayor? I said, son. <laughs> I got the room and the mayor, you know, got another defendant. It is without doubt a great, great honor uh, to be before you today, which I consider the most prestigious because of the original Civil War Roundtable. And to uh, sort of, I must feel very much like Daniel going to Lion's Den, or at least Clyde Beatty, you know, facing everybody without a chair and whip. Uh, actually, it was just right on the line here that the uh, Chicago Tribune reviewed my book, uh, Exit with Drums, and that their first line was, Joseph Daly has written the first novel about the Civil War. If he proves to be an artful dodger, he may survive the hardcore sentimentalists of the Civil War roundtables. The daughters of the Confederacy, the sons of the Loyal Legion, and live to write a second one. <laughs> well, I started on the second one, so I'm halfway there. The one thing Ralph Newman would say before he came in here, uh, Irving Wallace once had written a book and he used the Civil War background, and he made a big thing of saying everything in this book is precise, it's been well-researched, and it's, it's cold. Boy, this is good. It's used a fictional treatment, but everything else is correct. And with that, Newman hauled off and drop-kicked him into the cheap seats in one of the great reviews of our time, showing where he was wrong. So I avail myself of the great privilege of the cop-out and saying, I am a fictioneer. Everything else is poetic license and, and fancy when I deal with the great subjects of the Civil War. Obviously, I'm a Civil War buff myself, but when I decided to do a particular story about a particular area of it, I made up the whole area. The Battle of Pilgrim's Point came out of my own favorite imagination, as did the whole area of Luxor. As a matter of fact, I've never even been in Georgia, so I've got a lot of things that I can uh, just project upon. Of course, the facts themselves are in line with all the research I did do on it, but the conditions themselves didn't exist. And somehow, this is, uh, has its own amusing part. When the publisher finally accepted my manuscript and was very, very pleased with it, he mentioned to several of his friends who were great Civil War buffs that he had just got a very, very promising manuscript on the Battle of Pilgrim's Point. 
And they said, oh, yes, a very interesting engagement. And uh, yeah. the emperor's clothes, you know. Yeah. Oh, we see and then when I happened to mention casually that it didn't exist, he didn't believe me for a while because I, I had woven in a lot of actual historical figures into the whole, whole action. You know, I'm going to speak to you in many degrees tonight about the debt of the Civil War Roundtable and everyone else who is a scholar or a pupil or a student of the Civil War to the fictioneers, to the people who write the novels about it. And I'm also going to mention, I suppose, in other areas, that these are the people who are really not supported by people who have very, very great interest in the Civil War, who are expert on particular phases of it. And I think I know the reason why. It used to be that there were very, very dreary things and uh, very romantic, uh, so read the rose kind of stories. Anything dealing with the novel form of the Civil War. And then we got into an area which I refer to as the Torn Bodice School of Journalism, which then it was just everyone was very sexy about the whole Civil War thing. <clears throat> there is a happy medium, and there have been great uh, contributions of scholarship made in the way of the novel form of the fictional form without having to recourse to the particular directions of particular companies and battalions on the field of battle. But it gave something to the people who were reading it. Now, of course, the greatest success story in the history of publishing, even today, is Gone with the Wind. And now what Margaret Mitchell did for the Civil War, particularly uh, the whole area of the south of uh, Georgia at that time, as I said in my brief comments to Dan, she ruined it for the rest of us because everyone measures everything by the Civil War and by the uh, Gone with the Wind. You know, she had a, a different name for her main character, the legendary Scarlett O'Hara right now. And that was really the one thing that her editor suggested she change. And finally she was persuaded to do it. She had picked the name of a flower. It was very popular in the antebellum South, Iris and Lily and for the first names. But her name was Pansy. Pansy O'Hara was Scarlett O'Hara. And I can just see Clark Gable saying, give me a kiss, Pansy. <laughs> and I don't think the whole thing would have, you know, taken off as it did because of that. Well, how I come to write Exit with Drums, the book I have? Did I first pick out the area and then start, or with the concepts, or whatever? Well, despite the, uh, you know, speaking to a group such as today, I'll break a lot of the canons of taste, maybe, as a speaker. And saying that I really feel, gentlemen, that wars are pretty much the same all the time. I think you change the uniforms and the ordinance, but the things which make people go to war are not particular national issues. Uh, in fact, as your great scholars, I'm sure you've had come time and time again to you today to say, to develop the reasons for the war, to explore why the Civil War started. And you really don't get the, the answers. You get high passions. You get ideas, well, it had to happen. Uh, slavery would be one thing, but the other thing would be states' rights and things like Why did people enlist to go into this thing? Why did they have such a, uh, a big attraction? And you really can't come out with any solid answers. It would be the same in World War I, with the thinking of the Lusitania, and then we had to go in there. You know, the things don't rhyme. There is a season for all things, and they happen. So too in the soldier. What, did, what is the soldier, and why does he do it? What I took is my uh, thesis really at it. The war is going to be over. Everyone knows it's going to be over. It's late uh, February, going into March of 1865. But again, this could be the late World War II, late World War I, any kind of war. But the war is going to be over, and everyone is packing to go home. You're running for a job, everything. You want to see your wife, you know, forget about this thing. They're leaving. And everyone else knows it's over, too. 
Well, I introduced two characters into the thing, and they sort of lead my activity. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but just to base it on how I started it. One is a kid major in the Army of Northern Virginia. And the one thing this guy can do is just like Custer. He can give a hell for leather charge and not much else. And he wants to get killed in the battle. He figures that he'd been a coward early in the, in the, early in the war at Malvern Hill, and he's constantly seeking redemption at the cannon's mouth. And what does the Army of Northern Virginia do about him? They kick him out of the Army of Northern Virginia. At this stage in the game, they don't need any hard chargers. And they send him deep south to a place where nothing happens. And I don't want anything to happen. And the place this guy has in the book is called Luxor, which is a community which would be south of Brunswick, north of Fernandina, to just crystallize it and your minds on it. And of course, below Savannah. And there were areas here. Dairen was one of the big ones, which was burned to the ground, as a matter of fact, uh, in 1862 uh, by the Navy landing party. Uh, Fernandina, of course, as you know from your own studies, was the uh, post which was held as a coaling station and as a, uh, you know, for a supply depot. And so was Brunswick for the blockading fleets. But nothing happened down there. Uh, Savannah was guarded, and uh, when uh, Sherman took Savannah, he turned north. And when Hood wanted to fight him again, he went into the Battle of Franklin. No one paid any attention to this mysterious land, which was in this one particular period, uh, just below Savannah. So that's where I cited my action, because I wanted to isolate it and show how men react to one another. Now, the guy who I put down at the northern station, he was a West Pointer. And he had been, boy, he had just been offered when he was uh, just out of the point, the whole uh, command of the Rhode Island troops, of the second Rhode Island regiment. But his wife was Southern. Now, we have seen this in many times where the guy is frequently swayed by his wife, especially if they had the Northerners living in the South, such as Frank Nichols would be one from his class of 1955, which would stay in the South. Shawburn would stay in the South. Others would stay in the North. The members of this one class, I think, the class of 55, were Hazen and Torbert and Greg and Ruggles. Oh, Howard, we mentioned earlier, was just a class before him in 54. Uh, and everyone had to make up their decisions at this time. His wife attempts suicide because she doesn't want to go down and fight her father. And he finally says, all right, I, I won't. He goes up to be an attache. But then his wife dies and he comes back. And all of a sudden, he is grabbing all his friends, all the guys who were in college with him, because he suddenly realizes he only has one war. This is it. If he doesn't show himself, he's going to be guarding stockades out on the frontier forever, and nothing will happen. And so he finally succeeds in opposing to this pilgrim's point to start my battle. Because two men are now on either side. Both of them, for their own particular reasons, want a war. This could be any war. And how are they going to get it? And the only way anyone can get any kind of war, atrocities. Atrocities. We've seen them now in South Asia. They've occurred in every war we had. An atrocity occurs between the lines here and abruptly, both of them are at their throats. I'm a public relations man, which in some areas are called propagandists. And the, the propaganda of an event happening and how it is used by either side, neither knowing the other is using it for its own activity, is the same in every war. It builds their own people on spurious or incomplete or, or just fictitious activity. But it raises them to a height and where you have your explosion. Actually, if you, I think if you go back into Many of you are, into the whole war, you will find that there was the propaganda was high, the explosion was high, 
the idea of going to war with time, but for no very clear and distinct reason. And so too in this, which I clearly am not going to bore this assemblage with, just to lay the groundwork of how the Battle of Pilgrim Point took place and what does happen on it after it's over. Naturally, it doesn't affect the war in one way or another, but so many of the engagements that we read about, and treasure, as a matter of fact, didn't either. The weariness of the populace is the thing that you got when I was researching this book. Now, we're talking about the spring, very early spring, of 1865 in the winter. Everybody was ready to pack up and go. There wasn't any idea of saying, well, maybe we could once more and... Uh, We've heard over and over again about the particular movement of Lee, if he could have moved west and hooked up with Joe Johnston and maybe concentrated to beat Sherman. And then he could, this was, this is pretty much in the archives now of people here. They really didn't dream of it at the time. Oh, of course, I'm sure many of the staff officers suggested it as a possibility, but uh, there was a time and a season for all things, and this wasn't it. When those February rains stopped, they knew they had it. There was just too much cavalry, there was too much Sherman, too much Warren, too much everyone around there, including Custer, who was uh, surprising me because I always want to get mad at him. He's such a figure of fun and such an outlandish garb and everything. But boy, he could do one thing. He could lead in those Wolverines when he had to, as he did it at Gettysburg and they did it here. A very, very strong guy. There's <laughs> so many different things you learn as you're going through. Some of these things, I'm sure, are completely old hat to you. And of course, that's why it's always so difficult when you are speaking before a group of experts, you all have your own particular area of expertise. I always thought of, of Custer, though, with the, when he was a divisional commander at the time, with those huge stars on his hat and on his shoulder. Uh, he, he looked like something in a caricature, which he really was, I suppose. Uh, but the guy was certainly a passionate man and then deeply, deeply in love with his wife. And if anyone wanted to do a story on Custer, it better be Jackie Suzanne and go on the love machine. Because he had an exchange of correspondence with her, which was just, well, it made Casanova look like Tom the Tortoise. And when he had his whole baggage, was captured after five forks by Jeb Stewart in a raid. And they just had to pick it up, and they're going to send it home, as they normally would. And they started to read the letters. And my God, if there'd been a Xerox machine in the Army of Northern Virginia, this guy would have been more famous than Robert E. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> they were very frank with one another <laughs> in the time when they enjoyed practice. All this whole area, I have to be very careful when I was doing it. I suggest this to you for many of the guys who write fiction on the end of Civil War. You just don't wrap it out and say, well, who will know? We know you will know about particular areas. For instance, in moving my man down from Petersburg to my mythical place, you had to guide him through all sorts of railroads and across rivers and everything, and your deep uh, study you had to be, well, was that railroad going at that time? And yet, they constantly shift back and forth, and how could he have gotten across a particular territory? And it took, uh, you know, very much uh, looking into his Boatner's encyclopedia and the railroads and everything else to try to figure out where you were. As a matter of fact, thank you for one thing as being super critics, because once the fictioneer has something to fall back on, I need to do more research. He could stop writing, you know, and just find a way to just do more research. One of the things that I observed in this thing, he was going through Salisbury, and I had no idea Salisbury had been such a huge concentration camp. There were more than 12,000 Union soldiers died in Salisbury, which was a very small camp. In fact, the 12,000 graves were in the space of a football field. It was so, so dense. Actually, many men had been killed here who would, or died here, 
who were with the black regiments who were being raised, because any officers captured with the black regiments, they got a separate but equal prisoner of war camp. They got fuel rations, they got everything else because the South of course was very angry at them, and at one time they are going to execute every one of them. And Lincoln made the same, made the statement, you start that, and I'm starting with colonels on down to execute. But it was still a very, very tough thing to be captured as an officer in the black regiment. As a matter of fact, when they were, the numbers were captured at the Bell of the Crater at Petersburg, which is something I've researched very heavily, and they would, uh, when they were captured, they would not give their regiment, they would not say the fourth colored, the U.S. colored troops or whatever it was, they would give the regiment they had been in before they joined the colored troops. Uh, 32nd uh, New York or 3rd New Jersey or something like that to avoid it. This irritated one of the young lieutenants who was there when he watched all his his major and his captains and everything all giving names of regiments that they weren't in and he finally came up and they said, what regiment are you in? And he came to a stiff salute and said, 17th niggers, sir. <laughs> Which aimed him some kind of attention right there. The engineer corps of the army, I put my man in who came from uh, uh, on the Union side, I hadn't realized that the engineers had such a elevated position at the first five men in any graduating class who ordinarily went into the engineers. After that, you went to the artillery. After that, you went to the infantry. If you're a real dumb, you went to cavalry. And uh, I don't know, this speaks volumes about it because they put Winston Churchill in the cavalry, too, when he was training out there. This was, seemed to be the last part that they went in. Doing the research, you find the airsots of the Confederacy, the things that they did use at that particular time were monuments to invention. No one had to worry about corsets at that time because no one was fast. The blockade had taken care of that. But they didn't have any shoes, so they would keep making them of wooden shoes. And they said they weren't very good on hills because you find yourself sliding down the hill every time you went by. They used every form of animal skin. Uh, from uh, Even chipmunks and dogs were very popular. And this was for gloves and hats and everything. The hats were a big thing with women. They still had uh, palmetto fronds and straw and grass they made for their hats. So you still had to have your hat or not be anything at all. I mentioned the atrocities that occurred in my book. The atrocities occurred very, very sharply down there when Sherman was pursuing uh, through the Carolinas. Now, when I mean real atrocity, I don't mean just uh, saying someone uh, I would be mad at you or they wouldn't give you a chance or something. The home guard of the South Carolina, who would capture the advance of Sherman's men out there, <coughs> would actually torture them and would blind them and uh, would leave them to bound the trees. And of course, then Sherman's advance found them and they went up there. And this, I suggest you, might be part of the reason the Columbia did get burned. These guys were really angry at that time. Of course, I also didn't know that Sherman had sent all the big men home. Everybody over five foot 10 was sent back. They went to Thomas's Corps. Everyone else who marched, he called the little black devils. And they were all five foot seven and under. Because he thought small men, there was a, a feeling that small men had greater stamina. They could walk longer periods. And uh, in this case, it must have been true because they walked all the way up to Virginia finally when this was through in, in hard action too. And finding the same thing, I found that Sheridan, when he went to the valley, when uh, Grant had brought him up there, he cleaned out the cavalry corps. And he brought in his own cavalry corps. I think it was Bruce Caton and Pete Long and Safi on that, and it was suggesting that they were a race of the meanest jockeys who ever lived. You had to be under 25, you had to be single, you had to be under 130 pounds. And this was the one that made the Shenandoah Valley the desert of the Confederacy. There were, what did they say, the crows had to carry their own rations if they flew over there? Grant said that. But there were uh, Custer's men. Uh, well, Grant also ordered all Mosby's men executed by Custer at that time. 
The one thing I wanted to talk, well, another thing I want to talk about again is the novelist on this thing, of just the characters. Now, George Patton would be lost in the Civil War. I mean, the idea that this guy had a pair of big pistols and a funny looking hat, forget it. There are, the richness of the character on each side almost commands attention. Custer we discussed before, George Thomas, who had really left home in Southampton County, is, is uh, a face literally turned to the wall in the picture because the family don't want anything to do with him. Tromping along there, slow trot, Joe Hooker, who they really did name from everything we can find out. A hooker is supposed to shot a booze on a fast lady. Uh, he really had a, an operation himself. In fact, one of the greatest houses of prostitution in Washington was known as Hooker's Court. Also, some of the other lovely titles, Mother Russell's Bakehouse and the, the Blue Rocks and the Post Office and places like that. You could, could get lost there very easily. Burnside with his side burns, of course, which he introduced. And incidentally, you guys in Illinois did certainly a lot for the Civil War. McClellan was head of the Illinois Central and he gave Burnside a job. And so finally, when they wanted to boot out McClellan after Antietam, he took a long time to take the job because uh, he wanted his job back in the Illinois Central. And McClellan is going to be head of it. But he went on from there to a, just a great character with the Ninth Corps, the things he did do. And they tied the can to him and threw him out um, because of the defeats of, of Petersburg. McDowell, boy, there would be a guy at uh, Bull Run with his own hat he constructed. Tall as could be with the little windmills in it so he wouldn't get hot. And he pulled a little string and the windmills would go around and everyone was convinced he was signaling the Confederates. Just the character that you would have in it. General Marr in the Irish Brigade. He was The only reason the Irish Brigade ever enlisted, and my people were in the 63rd New York who went into it, was so they could get the training in the Civil War to let them capture Canada. Yeah. And they tried. And they did after the war. And they were frightened off by the National Guard of Canada. They sent them back the other way. General Carney, one arm, but holding his reins in his teeth as he charges across. Of course, he had an interesting aide-de-camp, too. Her name was Emma Edmonds, going under the name of Frank Thomas. And uh, Emma, I guess, was uh, carried his horse or wrote his letters or whatever that, whether you do or something like that. But her, she wrote her finally her autobiography of the thing, and the title was certainly arresting. It was named Unsexed. <coughs> I don't know whether she or Cardi was, but this is true. We've all read about Jackson and the different things he did with his, uh, his ailments, of course, which probably killed him uh, after he recovered from his arm injury. But the man who thought that his heart was taking all his blood, that his left arm was taking his blood away from his heart, and someone he was talking to, he suddenly hold up his left arm so the blood could slide back again and hold it that way was a curious fellow, to, to say the least. A.P. Hill, a corps commander, and wore his big red battle shirt when everyone entered battle. And this must be one hell of a guy, because when the war was over, and he was, he rushed up to a couple of the Union sergeants and said, uh, surrender, I'm taking you prisoner, and they shot him in the head, which was a <laughs> very unfortunate thing. But his wife at that time was four months pregnant, and she was delivered of the little baby, naturally, after, well after he was uh, dead, and it was a little daughter. And he must have been some guy because that little daughter was named Ambrose Powell Hill. Longstreet himself, as we've all read back and forth about him, old Pete Longstreet and Lee's War Horse, etc. He had an interesting life, to my mind, as a guy who writes novels, because he didn't want to be a general. He was a captain in the infantry on the frontier, and he wanted to be a major, only because he had 13 kids. He wanted to raise, and there wasn't any way he could get it in the army, in the infantry. So he shipped over to the Supply Corps, and that's where he got his uh, majority. 
And then when the old South decided to depart, he went up to Richmond, and he wanted to know if they had any majorities in the supply corps open. He said, no, this day we only got corps commander open. How do you fix for corps commander? He said, what's it pay? <laughs> corps commander. Jeb Stewart, again, these are just little things that stick in my own mind, and that's a, a novelist that you're going to be used in a lot of different ways. Stewart, you know, had this enormous beard, and he was a handsome man, of course, with it. But without it, he wasn't so handsome. Uh, beards only came in, as you all know, in the late 50s, and he was at the Academy before that, and he had an Andy Gump chin. It just went right in, and the uh, cadets, and the feeling of all unfeeling young men, called him beauty, because he was no beauty. And so finally, when the war came and he could grow a beard, he had the biggest beard that anyone ever saw, and still carried the name of beauty. I don't know, I've made notes on some of the guys in here that would just make every novelist just put his mouth water on it. Forrest, uh, with 29 horses shot out from under him, the only real slave trader in the whole thing. Shank Evans, who always had his private next to him carrying a, a keg of booze that he had to have right through every day. Uh, Clayburn, who gave his shoes away to the little drummer boy at the last battle, and he was our only general, I guess, ever killed on his bare feet. And the whole group that, you know, you appeal to, the Irish Brigade, the Iron Brigade, the Bucktails, the Excelsior, the Zwabs, all these things had so much color and life. I suggest that's what makes, in great part, Civil War of interest to us right now. People have called it the last war of chivalry, the last war of many different, or the first modern war. There's many, many different things, but it certainly has the color and life, which would appeal to a novelist. You know, novelists have been responsible for exploring and developing and bringing to the public interest uh, many, many more things, I would say, or at least as many, as people working in other, other different areas. It was Dickens who made the Dickinson area uh, stick out, and the, the child labor laws, everything good which happened about that came through a novelist. And when you think of the Spanish Civil War, we only think of for whom the bell tolls. If Hemingway told a better thing than that. Upton Sinclair on business and Sinclair Lewis about babbitry. If you want to go back to her own period, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin certainly had a more effect than anything else. And there are great areas of exploration, still very, very much open, which I suggest you might better be explored in the fictional form than it would be in the form that we would have uh, with the various movements on it. The Copperhead plot to see Chicago during the convention and free the prisoners at Camp Douglas. That was very much afoot. It was very, very close whether they could do it. Kirby Smith marched to Mexico. What a stirring crusade that was and what did happen on it. Cushing, the first real commando, right from the Albemarle Sound, all over and down the coast. There have been uh, stories about him uh, in nonfiction, biographies, but nothing with the, all the lights of it to, to bring it to public attention. <coughs> the black regiments at the crater at Petersburg, how they nearly won the war. That last day of July of 64, when they went in there, when the mine blew up, they were supposed to be the ones committed. Uh, and they had practiced it for a month, the attack. But Grant thought, no, they might go in there and they'd be cannon fodder, and I'd get the blame. So he sent the other ones in, everyone rushed right into the crater, and no one could get out of it. When they finally committed the blacks, it was too late, and they were torn to pieces on it. They used to have a chant, as a matter of fact, before they went into the crater, and they're thinking about it because it's funny, even at that time, they were soldiers, not respected by the Army of the Potomac, of course, and they knew they had to win their own war. Sometimes it just, you think in long nights of what might have happened if indeed they had liberated themselves and instead of receiving their liberation. And they used to have a chant and people would gather throughout the core area to hear it. 
we look like men are marching on, we look like men of war. Because they knew they had to do it themselves, or else they'd never receive the full rights of citizenship. And they did do it themselves, and we are seeing our own social problems right now, our own time, that they kept semi-citizenship. Similes the Mexico Brigade, banks in the Red River, the Raider construction in England, the Cherokees and the Confederate Army, which always got me. I don't know why there were so many Cherokees, because they were big slaveholders. And they had their own. They had at least 700 slaves which were owned in the Cherokee country of Alabama by themselves. <laughs> Unlucky Siegel and his poor hookers, Dutch heroes. But there are many things that you've read yourself now, which are novels in recent times, Andersonville, of course. My particular favorite one was written by a woman, Maggie Davis, called The Far Side of Morning. The Horse Soldiers by Harold Sinclair was a pretty darn good movie, too. The Beefsteak Raid by Boykin, another movie. Uh, Three Days, Gettysburg, Company Q, The Scarlet Patch. There's been many, many different areas of the war, handled with skill, with talent, with erudition, and with fidelity. It isn't just, uh, you know, wandering off and just using a blue and gray and stick characters to, to make their way in. Why well, I'm thinking of mentioning this so strongly because, as I've read, as I uh, mentioned in the comments before I came in here, the Civil War novel is about as welcome to a publisher, really, as a, a second-class citizen. <laughs> it isn't something that people uh, can accept and appreciate because they think, well, the Civil War Roundtables in that group, they will support the particular biographies and histories of specific actions, but never anything which deals with uh, the same uh, information, but in a novel form. And I think there is a place for a novel, certainly in anything. It is a, an exploratory device and something else you can use which complements the knowledge you already have. Uh, if you wanted to think of, say, World War II activities, you'd be thinking of the K-Mutiny. You'd be thinking of the young lions, the naked and the dead, before you'd be perhaps going to any of the more uh, erudite but uh, firm uh, books on biography and history and general reminiscences. I think they've scared me so much that I was actually going to do something on the Petersburg thing. My book is selling well, thank God. Things are going well. Even the movie thing looks, you know, fair right now. Uh, <laughs> I made the mistake of doing it. A costume drama needing outdoor sets at the time when they're trying to find out how to do Easy Rider <clears throat> for about $75 in the backyard would be helpful if they could win the whole thing. But I think this group that you have here is rather a keeper of the flame in the tradition of the country, the, the wellsprings of what we, we had and what we have we can cherish, because it leads us on to greater things now. I think the novel form can do the same thing and help in doing the same thing. Because as I said before, all wars are really the same. The particular ornaments and the statues and activities of the Civil War have their own particular meaning to us, but they are really the same thing. Men joined in battle for ideas which always become murky, but whose passions will always become hot. And I don't know whether there are men like this, you want to remember them and recall them, because this is what it's all about. They live life very, very strongly, with all their powers at the top of it, and whether their follies were, were large or their uniforms were uh, extraordinary or their uh, lives were almost given to levity in some times, they had in them a spark which made the country a, a spark which pushed back frontiers and preserved what we did have. And this is what I think has made the Civil War a particular treasure of us all, which we share here today. And as a novelist, I must say I'm going to go back and try something else on it, another different area, maybe not this year, but certainly next year, because it has its own fountain of youth which constantly restores you 
There's too many stories, as I just mentioned here, which were true. At least I can think of a little one. Thanks very much.